all this time was we were learning about all of the symptoms of one of the two conducts, one of the two primary conducts which God uh, utilizes and implements in his world, that conduct being the conduct of the conduct of Hanhagas Hamish, but the conduct of justice that uh, entails God standing back and giving man the freedom of choice and the development that comes from that choice. And what Rav Moshe Chaim has been describing for us is all of the conditions that are a product of that conduct. In other words, there are two. There's Hanhagas Hayichud in which God intervenes to get the world closer to the goals for which it was created. But so far, we're not dealing with Hanhagas Hayichud. We're not dealing with that conduct. We're dealing with Hanhagas HaMishpat, the conduct by which God stands back, lets a man choose and develop from his choice, and God responds with the conduct of reward and punishment depending upon the quality of human action. That's what we've been dealing with. Now, when we talk about Hanhagas HaMishpat, the very last thing that we learned two weeks ago about Hanhagas HaMishpat, or two and a half weeks ago, about Hanhagas HaMishpat, was that Rav Meshachayim Latzata made mention of the fact that that entire conduct of where everything is left up to our choice and we develop through our choices, and then God responds in, reward and punish, in a reward and punishment system, uh, Rav Meshachayim Latzata pointed out that that whole system couldn't have gotten underway unless there was a hester upon him, unless there was a certain, to a certain measure a concealment of God's presence. In other words, it is not totally clear. The realness of God isn't clear. The values of God are not clear. For were they to be ultimately clear, man wouldn't feel the, uh, the inclination to choose one way or the other. The example that we gave, if you recall, is that in, in a period of time where the realness of God is, is, is ultimately realized, to do an Avera, to do that which is against God's will, would be tantamount in a person's mind to sticking one's hand in, the, in a fire. That's what it would be like. And uh, obviously nobody, nobody really, unless there's something terribly wrong with them, nobody really gets stuck on that kind of a decision. You know, should I or shouldn't I put my hand into the fire? So in order to enable the conduct of justice, which is the conduct by which man is free to choose and develop through the choice, and God is merely responding to our choices, God uh, creates a world in which his existence is not apparent without man choosing to see it. That itself becomes one of the choices of man. That itself becomes one of the choices. It's there. One can, one, if one is, cares to look for it and one cares to find it, one can find it. But it also requires a choice in order to be able to see it. And essentially what really happens is that when man is making his choices, he's making choices about particular behaviors, to do or not to do. But in a general sense, he's making a choice about his ability to become more sensitive to the realization of God or less, less sensitive. So every choice that we make about a behavior is an individual choice about a behavior. But besides being a, an individual choice about a particular behavior, it is also moving me closer to seeing God or further away from seeing God. And that, too, is entailed in the choice that I'm, that I'm making. So when I said in review, as we began this evening, a couple of moments ago, I said that God stands back and allows man to choose, 
I meant it obviously in a, in a symbolic sense that God stands back, but there's a truth there. In other words, there's a concealment. There isn't an apparency of God immediately um, compelling the person to move in one direction. One can interpret it in many different ways. And that too becomes the choices of man. And God had to create that kind of a situation in order, in order for there to be the freedom to choose, in order for man to feel that he's working in, within an arena that, that he's, 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 he's making choices to do or not to do, what are the pros, what are the cons. And that exercise and that process of choosing is a developmental process. It's a process through which he develops. This is what we learned. Now, based upon this, based upon this, we have to now discuss, and this is what Rav Moshe Chaim is going to get involved in over here. Rav Moshe Chaim is going to get involved in something which is uh, a concept in Judaism that has many, many applications. He's going to use it in one particular way, but I will apply it to many, many different situations in Judaism that parallel this. What is the concept? The concept is the following. I'm going, to start, I'm going to start with an example. We'll start with an example because examples always bring it down to earth. A person writes something on a piece of paper. Right? So there there is a blatant communication, an obvious communication of a thought or an idea that I have, that I have taken my pen to paper and with the ink that flows from the pen into the paper, I boldly proclaim the thought or the idea. Right? That's Now, if the person then goes ahead and gets one of these erasable erasables and erases what he has written, very often, uh, even after you've erased, erased the, the, um, the bold color of the print on the paper, an imprint is left. Okay, unless you have a very, very good eraser or very poor ink, or you erase so hard that you make a hole in the piece of paper that you're erasing. Under normal circumstances, there is an imprint that's left on the piece of paper. Now, the imprint that's left on this piece of paper can conceivably allow or enable a reconstruction of what was erased. In other, words, in other words, if there is an imprint, even though the ink is not there, but if the imprint is there, all right, I remember that we used to do that as kids when the teacher used to write something and then erase it. We wanted to know what the teacher really wrote before. You know, and you tried to figure out what the teacher wrote. But the, uh, but the point being that even when the boldness of something is erased, uh, if an imprint is left, the imprint can be the way by which the letter can be reconstructed. All right? And all you then have to do is follow the imprint and fill the imprint in. All right? So I'm using that example. Now, that example is a Kabbalistic example. It's a mystical example which Lazaro uses in reference to God's relationship to the world. And let me explain how. Were God, okay, were God to give of, ever, of, of all of his presence into the world that he created, of all of his presence in the world that he created, so it, the, the letters would be so bold and they would be so, so blatant in front of us that we couldn't deny the message. We couldn't deny the message. So what Rav Meshachayim Lutzata says 
is that essentially what God does is that God, even though God holds back, okay, and even though God does hold back, and in order to allow us to make the choices, but that holding back that God does in order to allow us to make the choices is of the category that is referred to as imprint. In other words, when God created the world, when God created the world, the very creation of the world has the imprint of God on it. But God constructs the circumstances of the world in a way that all we see is an imprint. But an imprint it is. An imprint there is. In other words, the, the notion that God stands back and is totally unrelated to his world and there's nothing that the world is receiving at all and it's man that has to grope for a God that's divorced himself utterly and entirely from the world, that's not true. The, the, uh, the difference would be the difference between a letter written boldly on a piece of paper or where it's not written boldly but an impression of what is to be written or what was written and was erased is left on the piece of paper. So Rav Moshe Chaim Litzata says that though this world doesn't have a blatant statement of God and it's our choice to find God in the world, but God definitely created the world in the sense of the imprints, the impressions of his existence do exist in the world. For if God would not put any imprints or impressions upon his world, none whatsoever, it would, the world would be, so to speak, a blank stupid piece of paper with no proclamation whatsoever, no hint whatsoever of God, it would become impossible for man or very, very difficult or a lopsided balance for man to be able to find God. So the imprint is there. It's not necessarily written black and white. But the fact that there is an imprint there means that there is a connection. There is a level of revelation of God's presence that can be found, and it's upon that imprint that the person can now build the foundations of, <coughs> of investigation to finally find God completely. This is what Rav Moshe says. Now, <coughs> I'd like to learn this one paragraph inside just to get the words of Rav Moshe Chaim just to see the words and, and to define the words of the concept. And then I'll give a few examples of where this concept is present in other places in Judaism as well. It's not only present in God's relationship to his world, but it's present in many other things as well. And then I'll gladly invite questions on this. But this is a very, very beautiful, this is a very, very beautiful concept, the concept of the impression of God on the world, the imprint, while it's not necessarily completely clear, is a very, is a, is a very beautiful concept. Let's see the way Rav Moshe Chaim Litzata says it, not the way Kurzna says it. Let's see it inside. And then after we see it inside, I'll just give you some, uh, share with you some parallels to this concept, and then we'll take questions. I want you to know something Rav Moshe Chaim Litzata says. And this is in connection to, to the concept of God concealing himself or standing back and, and giving man the options of choice. Kivadai, this is for certain. Gamata, even now, in the period where God is standing back and giving us the freedom to choose, even though God conceals his, his utter goodness and his, and his, you know, and his sheer, and his sheer presence, and he definitely held back. He definitely held back, um, 
the, the, uh, the extent of the perfection that he could create in the world. He held back the extent of perfection that he could have created in the world. Even if that's true, that he held back the mark of excellence that he could have created the world with, there's no question that nevertheless he is constantly giving it's not as if he stands back and he's divorced he is giving but he's not giving with the boldness of the letters on the piece of paper and he's going to explain this because for were God to decide that he wants to stand back completely from the world the world wouldn't have a basis of existence the, the basis of existence that the world has has to be, as minimum as it might be, it has to be with some kind of a connection to its creator that is constantly nurturing it. Now, I'm not going to go into the philosophical reasons why there has to be constant nurturing, but the, 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 the philosophical concept that God has created the world ex nihilo means that God is a constant nurturing power to that which exists in this world by his will. There's a constant nurturing. So what Rav Meshachayim Litzat is saying, I made a statement that God conceals himself. God holds back his mark of, of perfection and his mark of excellence in the creation of the world. He purposely holds back some of that for, so that we should be free to choose. But don't think for a minute that when God's holding back, that he's holding back completely. For were God to hold back com- utterly and completely, there would be no way of understanding the existence of the world in the context that we do know it. There would be no world. So the very fact that there is a world automatically is, is, says testimony to the fact that there is a God that's giving. And therefore the idea that God is utterly divorced is not true. Now, in Cain vade mashpiyahu, there's no question that he's giving. But the level of nurturing that God is doing at this present point in this world that functions with the conduct of justice in relationship to what he could give to the world in other words relatively speaking if he wanted to give the mark of excellence it's like the shadow of a person that tells me the form of the person but the shadow is only a shadow it's not the person that's one example well, the imprint that remains on a piece of paper, after the letters, after the letters were taken away, the the ink itself was taken away. The imprint that's left over, the and this kind of nurturing, where God takes away the letters, and you only see the imprint, or God takes away the person, and but you only see the shadow of God, right, that is. Since relative to what God could give, it is referred to as choshech v'lo ar. It's referred to as a state of darkness as opposed to a state of light. Now, amnam, even though it is referred to in relative terms as darkness, we have to know ligabi didan in our terms al kolpanim zekol chayenu. Everything that we have in life every contact that we have to spirituality, every meaning that we are able to conceive of, everything that we, we, we can have in terms of our contact with God, that all comes from that state of Choshech. 
That's all part of what we refer to as, relatively speaking, as Chaushek. Zekol Chayenu. Ki zeis anachnu chayim v'kayamim. Because it is in this, in, this, uh, in this nurturing that we get our life and our established existence. Lo zulasa, we don't get it from anywhere else. V'nimtza, and therefore it comes out, kishenaskim in ha'ashba, azais ha'machudashes, v'hestepnei tuva yuzbarach nikreu b'klal echad, k'moytzei l'akayach ha'elyon levad, lo yose. And therefore, just to complete the discussion of the conduct of justice, to complete the, the discussion of the concept of justice, Rav Moshe Chaim is saying, God's relationship to his world is that of his shadow. That would be the way he's ending off the discussion here. But within that shadow, we have the entire form, we have the entire structure of what is the entire conduct of God. Similar in a shadow, we don't see it as well as we see it with letters on a piece of paper. If you had a letter written and then you erased it, okay, it's not that part of the letter you have and part of it you don't have. You have the entire letter in imprint. So Rav Chaim Litzat is saying that when God stands back from his world, it's not that we have a part of God and another part we don't have. We have the whole God in an imprint form, which means that virtually everything that we have to know about God as he relates to his world, is available to me in the imprint level. It's not like I see half of it, but not the other half. I see the whole in an imprint level. And the fact that I see the whole in an imprint level enables me to then f- slowly fill in all of the parts. Okay? It's very much like one of these color fill-ins, where, it, where all of the possibilities are there, and you just have to fill in all of them. It's not like a half of the picture is totally missing. The whole picture is there, but it needs to be filled in. It has to be made sharper. It has to be made clearer. But nevertheless, what we do have presently is nothing more than a shadow of the real essence. This is what Rav Meshachayim Lutzata is saying. Now, why is Rav Meshachayim Lutzata saying this? That's the first thing that we have to get out of the way or the first thing that we have to understand. Why is he saying this? Why is this important to say? Isn't it nice to go home tonight and to think to yourself that God had to stand back from the world in order to make us, give us the freedom of choice, and God, and uh, Rav Meshachayim Lutzata says, I want you to go home with certain words on your lips. Darkness, shadows, imprints. I mean, what, why is this all so significant? I mean, what does Rav Meshachayim Lutzata want to do here? I mean, what, what's the significance of this? I mean, what, what's, what, what tree is Rav Meshachayim Lutzata barking up? I mean, what does he want to do with this? What is he trying to tell us? He's trying to make a very profound statement. That's the truth. The truth is that he's making a statement here that the extent of God's concealment from this world is a, a sometimes a very disturbing and a very baffling thing. I mean, anybody knows, anybody knows, and I'm not talking necessarily about the conducts of God, but anybody knows that through the centuries all kinds of attempts were made to say that either there was no God or there was a God but he has nothing to do with his world or he has long since expired and gone off to Olam Haba but he's not here. There are many different, there are many different versions there are many different versions 
Okay, there are many, many different versions. And one of the things that, one of the aspects that is most difficult to accept is the fact that God is not as clear as I would like him to be. God is not as apparent as I would want him to be. And darn it all, if God wants me to see him, why doesn't he show himself? Now, I don't say that everybody says those words in exactly that verbiage, but underneath, I think we subconsciously might feel that. So what Rav Chaim is saying here is the following thing. Rav Chaim is saying that the truth of the matter is that we do have an ability within the context of the world that's around us to know everything that is knowable about God. In other words, it's not as if God is hidden in a way someplace and I have to bring him out of hiding. He's there and he has revealed on an imprint level everything that's significant for us to know about him. And that's why he uses the concept of the letters and the concept of the shadow. In other words, a shadow is usually a shadow of a whole form. An imprint is an imprint of the entire letter. Okay? Usually, if it's a good imprint. So what Rav Chaim Litzata is saying is that God definitely put into the world, if I see it, if I don't see it, a level which is referred to as imprint. He put that level in. Now, it, that, doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that it's necessarily apparent in the same way that you look at a piece of paper and you see the imprint. But it means that there's a level of connection that's innately part of what this world is. And it's not that part of God is innately there and part of God isn't there. Every part of God is there in a measure. Right? Now, the fact that God is there in a measure means, and I'm living in this world, and I'm made up of everything that this world is made up of, that means that I have a way of, of relating to the concepts of God and, and, and coming to be sensitive to those concepts of God. Now, this all sounds abstract. Let me give you one or two examples of the concept of imprint. And once you see these one or two examples of the concept of imprint, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Because like this, it's very abstract. God created the world, and he made an imprint on the world, and we can't necessarily read it with our eyes, but it's there, and since it's there, we can have a connection to it. It sounds very lovely, but can it get more real than that? So let me give you two examples. Let me give you two examples. Uh, one example is a two-part example, and that's in, in the discussion of the neshama. Okay, let's talk about the neshama for a minute. We are told in, in our tradition that one of the greatest states that the soul of man lives through is in the nine months of pregnancy. This is what the Medrash tells us. The Medrash tells us that in the nine months of pregnancy, the neshama that is designated for this child has a clairvoyance and a perception of the reality, though it's already in this world, that is described in our Madrashic literature in the following way. The soul can see from one end of the world to the other end of the world. Now, that doesn't mean it in the literal sense, because nobody can see from one end of the world to the other end of the world. In the physical sense, one, one cannot comprehend that. But in a spiritual sense, the, the, the ability to comprehend the meaning of the world, the context of the world, the relationship of the world, 
towards its creator, towards the, the goals of its creator. This the Neshama has an ability to see. That ability, we all recognize, is not t- terribly apparent after we're born. Right? We do not see Mesofa Olam Atsofa Olam after we come into this world. Number one. Number two. The Talmud tells us that an angel learns with the neshama, learns with the soul, everything that relates to God's will, as it's expressed in the Torah. So when the child is born, the child already has a PhD in Torah. The only trouble is that he forgets everything that he learned a moment after he's born. The way that some of our literature describes this is that as high and great and spiritual as he might have been in those nine months of preparation, when he hits physical mass, physical atmosphere goes straight out of his mind. Now, the question that always comes up, and people always ask me this question is, what on earth is the reason for God to teach uh, uh, the the, uh, growing embryo and child within its mother's womb, Torah, if it's all going to be lost the moment the child is born? What's the function of it? What's the purpose of it? The Medrash says, I'll give you another, another interesting example. The Medrash says that the angel takes the soul for a journey. goes on a tiyul. Okay? The soul goes on a tiyul. Okay? Any of you that uh, want to know why you like tiyulim, it's because your soul's made tiyulim before you got here. The tiyulim go to two very different places. The Medrash says that the Amalek takes the neshama for a tiyul of Gan Eden, and a teal of Gehenim, a teal of the world to come, in other words, the, the rich rewards of a world to come, and also to the place where n- n- souls go through spiritual pl- pain of purification. And the soul is taken for the teal. Now, it's very interesting that on this teal, the tour guide asks the soul if he recognizes anybody in the world to come, or if he recognizes anyone in Gehenim. This is the tour asks, and the Neshama doesn't. So what the tour guide then tells the soul is that all of these souls were together with you. But what happened? They came into this world. And they changed to a point of being completely not recognizable to you, either for the better or for the worse. And that's why you don't recognize them. Now, this tiyul is not the kind of a tiyul that the neshama takes pictures from and brings them back home to show mommy. There's... in other words, but this is something that's innately being etched into the neshama. But seemingly on conscious levels, it's totally lost. The child is born. And all of, this, all of these cognizant states that the child was living through, which were very high spiritual states, are all lost on conscious levels. What's the reason for them? What's the function for them if they're all lost? Here we come to the concept of imprint. This is the concept of imprint. That, uh, in other words, before the neshama comes into this world, God writes in bold type every, as the realization of God for the neshama. And then when the neshama comes into this world, it is essentially erased by the concealment of this world. But an imprint always remains. And the imprint is what allows the neshama to relate and to reconstruct, and not to learn for the first time, but to relearn what it always knew. That's a different thing. We all know that relearning something is different than learning something that was totally foreign. 
This is, by the way, a phenomena that many people have described for me. People that have returned to Yiddishkeit and they become familiar with different concepts in Judaism, they come over to me after the shear and they say to me, you know, Rabbi, I always knew this. It's not as if you taught it to me today and I didn't know it before. Now, there was something in me that told me that as I heard it, that I always knew it. The function of I always knew it is this imprint. Now, this concept of imprint is not only, doesn't only have its benefit in, in, in the regard that when I do come to learning it, it aids in my relearning process. The concept of imprint is so strong that it's the imprint that might drive me to want to learn it. In other words, the concept of imprint isn't only that if I elect to learn, so now I'm relearning. It's, it doesn't only function that if I use it, so then it's there. It goes beyond that. Since there is an imprint there, there's something that the neshama is asking for. The neshama has a sense of something, but it's not clear. It's not bold. It's not outstanding, but it's there. There's an imprint there. And sometimes when something is an imprint level, it's more maddening because you know that something's written. It's not a blank piece of paper, but I can't figure out what it is. Right? The imprint becomes an energy through which man desires to learn what the imprint is all about and what the bold face really said to begin with. So it works in that sense. Let me give you another example which is very similar to this example. Yichus, spiritual pedigree. Okay? Spiritual pedigree also works in this way. A person can come from, from a, a family that was very rich spiritually. Right? But after everything is said and done, no matter how rich your father was, grandfather spiritually, I'm saying, great-grandfather was, it doesn't mean a darn thing if you don't pick the thing up and learn it for yourself. Okay? But if you do pick it up and learn it for yourself, you will grow immensely, immensely greater because you're dipping into potentials that have been developed and the imprints are already there. And you're filling in, not a picture that has to be painted, but one that was painted but that needs darker colors. The concept that very often a person that comes from a very, a very qualified spiritual pedigree that that person does tshuva and eventually returns to Judaism is also by virtue of the concept of pedigree. There's a very, of, of the imprint that was made in, in earlier generations. There's a story that um, I heard firsthand from the family that it happened to. There was a family in California that... Uh, that was a family that their Shabbos table was very open. They were chassidishly inclined, but their table was open to all types and all walks of life and so on and so forth. And they had, independently of all of their guests, they had a very large family. Arab Shabbos was a day when there was extra help in the house. And there was uh, um, a young girl in the house in her teens that used to come Friday to help. And all, obviously all of the preparations Friday was, you know, with the, with the aroma of the chicken soup and the fish and the chicken and the cholent and everything else. So she grew up in the environment of the preparations for Shabbos and getting the children ready for Shabbos and so on and so forth with the entire picture of, of Judaism 150 years ago possibly in Eastern Europe. And little did this individual know, she knew she was Jewish but that was about it, but she didn't know what was going on with week in and week out her contact here. She didn't know. 
But once she left, the, she, she was busy to very late, and by the time she left, the family was already singing Shalom Aleichem before Kiddush. And as she was leaving, she caught some of the, some of the, some of the notes of the tune. And something in her attracted her to stop and to listen. Right? So she stopped and she listened and she enjoyed it. Shalom Aleichem, And she went away and she didn't know what was with her. She couldn't, she couldn't figure herself out what was keeping her there. Now, she purposefully, after that week, stayed later, the next day of Shabbos and the next day of Shabbos, until she was finally caught hiding under a bush because she was waiting under the bushes outside to hear all of the Zmiris of Shabbos. And they heard rustling, they went out, and they, and they caught her there. They caught her there, they brought her in, and they began talking to her and asking her and this and that. And the end of the story was that she came out to be an anical of the Baditshiva, of the Kedusha Slavi. The Baditshiva was a very, very great, great person. She was an anical of the Baditshiva. And what the, the person in the house said, what the host of the house said was that the yichas of the Baditshiva had sich abgemant. That the yichas of the Baditshiva would put roots into this person. Bold face, not bold face, but imprints. And those imprints, sooner or later, beckoned the neshama back to its source. The end of the story is that today she's, she's a totally observant Jew. She's living in Israel with a family. It's, it's a very interesting story. But that's the concept of the imprint. I want to give one more example of the imprint and then I'll take questions. One more example of the imprint. <coughs> the, um, in our prayers, three times a day, we make reference to a shofar gadol, to a big shofar. We say in our prayers, no, no, not a small shofar, a big one, a shofar gadol, a big shofar. Blow with your shofar and gather in the, 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 all of the, those that have been scattered all over the world and bring them back to Jerusalem, a shofar gadol. What does this term Shafer Gadol mean? What does it mean? Now, the truth of the matter is that when we talk about sounds, when we talk about sounds, let's start from a historically what I would refer to as the middle sound. What do I mean by the middle sound? Chronologically, it's the middle sound. By the giving of Torah, there were two sounds which were present. There were two sounds which were present. There was the sound of, the, of, of, of God's voice proclaiming the Torah, and then there was the sound of the shofar. These were two sounds that were present at the giving of Torah. The sound of the utterances of Torah were on one level, it was one level, it was one... It was one uh, whatever it was in decibels of volume, and it was an even keel, and that's how the Torah was, was proclaimed to the world. On the other hand, the, the shaifer sound, the sound of the shaifer, was a sound that instead of normally getting weaker and weaker, was 
The sound of the shayfa was getting stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. So we have two sounds by the giving of Torah. One of them remains an even keel from beginning to end in the expression of the Torah. The kol shofar, which we altogether don't know what its significance is in the Sinai experience, is a sound that gets stronger and stronger and stronger. As it goes on, it gets stronger and stronger. What's it all about? What's the significance? What does it mean? So let me try to let me try to um, put this into perspective. Where does the Shafer get its earliest origins from? The Shafer gets its earliest origins from the binding of Isaac. Abraham, in a test of loyalty, was, was tested if he would be willing to even sacrifice his son. It was only a test to see his willingness to sacrifice his son. He went up there, he went through with the test, he was prepared, and then in the last moment before he actually sacrificed his son, God said, Don't you dare touch him, don't you dare do anything to him. You have proven your loyalty and that's all that I wanted that should come out in terms of an experience of your life to prove that ultimate loyalty. You've accomplished it. I don't want anymore and I never want it anymore. That's the statement that God makes to Abraham. And Abraham is frustrated. Abraham is frustrated. Why? Because Abraham knows that you can want and will and will and want and want and will all your life long but until you get something done it's really not done. It's really not accomplished. You haven't really done it. You know, there are proverbial people that always talk about their glorious plans for 20 years and 30 years and never, never ever get to doing it. Okay? And one can rightfully question okay, even the level of how much they want to do it if it never gets done, if it never comes to fruition. In any case, Avram was in a state of frustration, though he understood that he had no choice. And if God says, don't do it, it's don't do it. But Avram was now concerned. Avram was concerned that he had brought himself up to a level of want and will and giving everything for that which God asked him. But in the last moment, did it reach reality? Did it reach the world of realness? No. The end of the story was that he walked away together with Yitzhak, not without Yitzhak. Did he make the supreme sacrifice? He didn't really, or at least he was concerned that he really didn't. Okay. Now, because of this, Abraham looked to and fro around the Mizbeach and saw that a ram had been um, in, enmeshed, stuck in bushes around the Mizbeach. Now the Gemara says that this was no coincidence, but that God had provided this animal around the altar and uh, Abraham understood that this, okay, that this particular ram, this particular ram could be in place of the sacrifice of Isaac. And he then went ahead and sacrificed this Ayo, which was, in fact, the intention of God. And he played out all of the loyalty and dedication that he was prepared to do on Yitzhak and imagined that he was doing it to Yitzhak, but he played it out in the physical reality on the Ayo, on the ram. So when he went through the entire process, 
He did it in the physical reality, not with Yitzchak, but with something else, but he at least was bringing it to one more level of reality, one more level of realness. The level of realness that all of my feelings actually had a physical manifestation in this world. Now, the Pirkei de Rebelaza tells us, and this is very fascinating, the Pirkei de Rebelaza says, I want you to know that from that aisle nothing was ever lost. There was nothing that was ever lost from that ram. Every single part of that ram played a part in history. Every single part of it. Okay, and we have to know exactly what that means, but I'll just share with you three of them. This aisle had two horns. The right one was larger than the left one. Right? It had two horns. And obviously it had the, uh, the veins that could be become and can, could be used to become musical strings. So the, so the Pergadur Abelaza says, the left horn was the horn that was blown by the giving of Torah. The right horn is the one that's going to be blown when Mashiach comes, the Shefer Gadol. The strings that could be made from the veins of the animal became the strings of David's harp. And the Pirkei de Rebelaza goes through every part of the aisle and shows how every part of the aisle played a role in the future history. Now, that's a very, very mystical Pirkei de Rebelaza, exactly what it means. But one thing is very clear. What was Avram busy with when he took that aisle and when he was functioning with the aisle? What was he trying to do? What he was trying to do was he was trying to take that which was only an imprint, that which was only an impression, that which was only uh, a desire to do, and was working as hard as he could to bring the imprint, the desire, the impression to the world of reality. That's what Avram was doing. He was taking something that was only, you know, in the world of thinking, only in the world of desire, only in the world of wanting to do, and, and he was doing everything that he could with that aisle. And with every part of that aisle, he was trying to take the imprint that he had developed within himself of his relationship to God and bringing it, bringing it to the total reality of this world. So therefore, the Pirkei de Rebbe says, Avram worked so hard to take the levels of the imprint of doing God's will and bring them into reality that the end was that they did come into reality in the harp of David, in the shaifer of the giving of Torah, in the shaifer when the Mashiach will come. What are all of those things? All of those things are revelations of God. They're taking God out of the level of imprint and into a clearer focus of reality. What was the function of King David's Psalms? It was enunciating and it was proclaiming and it was making clear through song that which up to that point was only imprints and impressions of God. What was the giving of Torah if it wasn't the revelation of God and the revelation of God's will in connection to his world? The shofar of the ayol. And then the shofar in Mashiach's times that will tr make a statement to the entire world of the existence of God. So what, what, what function does the shofar have? The shofar's function from the time of Avram because of what Avram did with the entire ayol is that vehicle, and I'll explain to you in a minute why it is, 
But it was that vehicle that took things from the level of impression to the level of reality. That's what its function was because everything that Avram did on that aisle was the work of imprint to reality. And therefore, forever and ever, every part of the aisle represented this, uh, the, the ability, the talent, the, the strength to take something from an impression to a reality. Now, here we come to the concept of the Shofar Gadol. And this is a very, very fascinating concept. The generation that stood at Sinai, the generation that stood at Sinai, there was very little in the generation that stood at Sinai that lived in impression. It was very little. It was all real. They were living through what we call the real thing. They didn't, in other words, if, if you would have to make two columns for a Jew, those things that have already become accomplished realities in my life and those things that are still imprints. The Jew of the Sinai experience, how many points could he put on the column of reality? He would put all of his points on the level of reality, maybe with a, with a certain amount that was left out because he wasn't yet worthy to understand all of the secrets that were revealed. But by and large, he put all his points on the column of reality. How much did he put into the column of imprint? There was very little because it was very bold. They heard what was normally able to be, only to be seen and they were able to see that which was able to be heard. Everything was very, very clear. Okay, Everything was very, very clear. The, col the, the ratings in the columns change. There's a few less points in the, in the column of reality. There is a few more points in the column of imprint. Because as the Jew goes further and further away from the Sinai experience, the, the, uh, the strength of the bold reality becomes diminished. So the reality column becomes smaller, the imprint column becomes bigger. How much of my connection to God is in the world of reality and how much of it is in the realm of imprint from that which occurred earlier in my history becomes greater and greater as history marches on. As history marches on, by and large, I lose contact with the, with the strength of the bold-faced reality and, and, and more and more of it goes over into the area of what? Into the area of imprint. So therefore... God said very simply at the Sinai experience, the Torah is one Torah for all generations. And therefore the sounds that express the words of Torah themselves is a sound that is an equal sound for all generations. But the, the shofar, whose function is to take the imprint and make it reality, that shofar becomes bigger and bigger from generation to generation. Because as the generations go further and further away from the Sinai experience, the function of the shofar becomes bigger and bigger. The function of, of imprint to reality becomes bigger and bigger. So therefore, in the, in the Sinai experience, the Torah is Torah. The Torah doesn't change. The body of Torah is the same. So that sound is an equal sound throughout. But the shofar, which is that the ability to take imprints and make reality out of it, that gift, that's a gift that has to grow. And if nothing else grows within the Jew from generation to generation, the, the urgency, the thrust, the compelling aspect of imprint becomes bigger and bigger. 
the reality is smaller. But the imprint, the nudge, the, the, the thrust, that there's something there and I don't know how to decipher it becomes bigger and bigger because less is in reality and more is an imprint. That's the Shefer Gadol. Tekab is Shefer Gadol. Now, you'll ask me a question. Where is the mystical power of the Shefer? Where is the mystical power of the Shefer? The mystical power of the Shefer is very much tied up with the fact that the Shefer is a wind instrument and it's an instrument that we blow that which is within us out, which is a representation of a product of our neshamas. The shaifer has the ability to wake up that which is within us. That's the greatest imprint of greatness. What does the shaifer wake up? The shaifer wakes up the thing that's the biggest imprint of greatness. In our own lives, if we would be able to point to one thing that is the most magnificent imprint of God. Not the reality, because we haven't developed it yet. But imprint, it's the neshama. The, the shaifer has the ability to wake up the neshama. Waking up the neshama is beginning the process of imprint to reality. So this concept, which Moshe Chaim Litzata says vis-a-vis God's relationship to the world and his nurturing of the world, we have to understand that you can look at it in very abstract forms in terms of the physical physical world and where do you prove God in the world or don't prove God in the world. You can look at it that way. But Rav Moshe Chaim Lutzat is going much, much deeper than that. Rav Moshe Chaim Lutzat, when he says the concept of imprint, it's not just where can I prove God from the giraffe's ears or from the length of his, from the length of his neck. Rav Moshe Chaim Lutzat is going much further than that. Rav Moshe Chaim Litzad is saying that there's a relationship of, that we have to God of an intense imprint that's becoming bigger and bigger and sooner or later has to beg to be deciphered. Sooner or later has to beg for the, for the bold face to be etched into the imprint. And that's this concept of imprint. Once we live with this concept of imprint, you know what this concept of imprint is? The, the, the seesaw of reality with imprint, you know what it's really saying? That seesaw I would call the eternity of the Jew. That seesaw is the eternity of the Jew because either you have it in the reality or you have it in the imprint. It's one or the other. It's in the reality, so you have the reality. What's better than that? If you don't have it in reality to the extent that it becomes deficient in reality, it still remains in the level of imprint. And in the level of imprint, it's there. It has to be made clearer, but it gives man a thrust, it gives man a desire. But the notion that one dashes out the reality of God and one is left with a total zero, an absolutely blank piece of paper, no Jew is an absolute blank piece of paper. Period. That doesn't exist. You can't get away from it. You, 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 you are a piece of paper that has been written on. And the person that wrote on it was God. Finished. Gamarno. There's no way of getting away from it. All right? It's not a blank piece of paper. And that's it. I'll take questions. I went a little bit off the point, but I think this concept of imprint is an important one. Let's take some questions. You had a question before. Your question was answered. I had a sneaky suspicion that it would be. <laughs> yeah. Okay, there's no question that the concept of imprint is a universal one 
in the sense that every single thing that is a creation of God has the imprint of its creator. There's no question about it. But what, what, when we talk about the concept of imprint, imprint is in relationship to the measure. Taking the example of the Sinai experience, which I shared with you, the concept of imprint is in relationship to, to the concept of the reality that the person experienced. You have an imprint, you have an imprint to the measure of what was the reality. Your imprint can't be greater than what your reality was. Whatever your reality is, it's that w- that's the, the measure of imprint that you can have. What your reality was, what you didn't experience, you don't have an imprint of. Right? Now, obviously, different people have different levels of reality, different levels that they absorb the reality, and different missions that are attached to those realities. So therefore, the concept of the imprint and that the imprint is a motivating factor is something which is universal, but it's not the same for, for, for everybody. It's not the same. It's not the same level. If the levels of reality are not the same, so then the levels of the imprint are also not the same. What we're saying here is that the level of reality that the Jew once experienced was so great that he now deals with a tremendous level of imprint. That level of imprint is what binds the Jew to a mission which matches the level of imprint. Not necessarily, it's not necessarily to match the level of reality because the person doesn't have it yet. And that's why the Talmud says, for instance, Yisrael Shechata, Apopi Shechata Yisraelhu, that a Jew, even if he sins, he can't renounce his Jewishness. He can't become, uh, he can't become un-Jewish. Why can't he become un-Jewish? Because of what I said. The paper was written on. And once the paper was written on, no matter what you do to erase it, you can't erase it. Okay? But obviously, you can only make an attempt to erase as much as was written. Different measures were written. Why different measures were written for different people, that's a, that's a whole discussion, which I'm not going to get into now. That gets into the whole, to the whole discussion of how the Jewish people evolved and how their mission evolved, which needs to be discussed, but it's, it's a separate issue. But the concept itself is true on all levels. Yes. There will be. Yes. Okay. The fact that there will come a time in Mashiach's time where there will be uh, there will be universal truths, uh, what you refer to as Deya Achas, sounds better in Hebrew, Deya Achas instead of universal truth. But in any case, um, even that that being true, it doesn't mean that the rest of the world is going to become Jewish or have a Jewish mission. Or anything, that's not what it means. In other words, there are basic levels of recognition of God that will be universally held, universally believed in. Uh, but it doesn't change. It doesn't change the context in terms of mission. The Jew's mission will remain a, uh, a mission that is uniquely Jewish, and the mission of the world will will become what it was always intended to be, but not necessarily fulfilled either. Not to say that we fulfilled our mission, but I'm just saying that the idea that it will become deachas doesn't mean that we all become equal in, in potential or equal in mission. That's not what it's saying. Deachas means that there are fundamental levels of belief in God and connection to God 
that will be shared by all. That's what the, that concept of Dayachas is. Yes, the hand in the back. Oh, and this has to be on tape. What can I do? Okay. Let me answer the, the question. Okay. Let me answer the question. I'll, I'll repeat the question first for the sake of the tape listeners. Uh, working along with this concept of imprint, how do, how do we reconcile, okay, how do we reconcile the, uh, the sitting of Shiva, the sitting of mourning over a person that intermarries? <coughs> which seemingly connotates that this person doesn't exist anymore. The laws of mourning is only for a person that's not alive. It happens to be an excellent question. Uh, you want to know more than that? No. Uh, okay, one second. Okay, I, I, let's, let's see where it... All right, let's start this way. Let's start from present times and let's work backwards. See, it's a mistake intellectually to try to conceive of something um, that I'm going to share with you is not true for today and measure it by today's standards. Let me explain what I mean by that. Today, I don't think that it's at all simple, at all simple, this particular conduct of sitting shiva for a person that intermarries. I don't think that it's simple. If I'm not mistaken, uh, I can't quote, but I did ask some very uh, quotable people. But um, and it doesn't exist. It really is, is not true for today. And the reason why it's not true for today is for various reasons. Reason number one is that I would tell you that 98 percent, most probably, of all intermarriages. If you would ask me, is it the fault of the person that intermarried, I would tell you no. And the reason for that is, now you know why I didn't want it on tape. Uh, the reason for that is that you can't expect any different from a person that grows up in a totally non-Jewish, totally ignorant of Jewish ident true Jewish identity environment and to expect the person realistically to grow up with a strength of Jewish identity that would prevent an intermarriage. You know, the, 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 the notion that I'm Jewish and I'm proud of being Jewish even though Jewishness doesn't mean anything to me except that it says on my passport that I'm Jewish, that kind of a concept of identity went out a long time ago. It doesn't exist anymore. It doesn't exist because the generations that were a little closer to what Judaism was, even if they didn't have it for themselves, but they were proud of it because they were one generation closer to seeing it real. But the generation that grows up on the streets of Long Island or all of the far-flung western cities all over the world that never saw a Jew and might even as Jews believe that other Jews have horns, all right, and I've met Jews like that, all right, to expect them to have a Jewish identity that will be strong enough and will not view the issue of intermarriage as prejudice is totally unreasonable. It's not reasonable. 
you're expecting something. You know, parents wake up when, they, when their child intermarries. You know, it's a terrible thing. And how could my child have done such a thing? Wake up. You didn't give them any real qualitative Jewish identity for the last 20 years or so. So what do you expect? When they say that it seems to them that it's prejudice, they're saying an honest opinion. They're saying an honest feeling that's within inside of it. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not supporting intermarriage. But I'm just saying that the people that get involved in it, by, by and large, do not have the tools to be able to understand what they're doing. From where are they supposed to get the tools? If you have a person that grew up in a healthy environment, in a very positive environment, and uh, rebelliously went off, so then you, then you have a discussion, what's going on with this person? This person is a rebel, this person is being spiteful. Uh, how do you treat a rebel? How do you treat a spiteful person? And even then, I'm not completely sure, and I don't completely understand the concept of, of mourning this, this individual. I'm not sure of it, though I know that it existed. I'm not sure of it. But certainly in today's times, I mean, we're asking questions for today. We're not asking questions for, for not before today. In today's times, in today's times, I would say the exact opposite. I would say that it's a crime to close the door on such a person. Because if you close the door on such a person, the person will never have the chance to ever, to ever regain the ground when he does get his senses about him. And the advice that I give people that go through it is that you have to do your darndest to prevent it. But once it happens, the notion of going over to the person and saying, you're not my son anymore, I hate your guts, I don't want to ever talk to you again, I don't think it's right, I think it's completely wrong. Because that certainly... See, long ago, and maybe, and maybe this could be contested, but the psychological fiber of a human being today is, is in many ways a lot weaker than it was years ago. In other words, today, if you make a statement like that to a person, you utterly destroy the person. Okay? Because the person was, grew up in a very pampered and a very soft and cushy environment. And the first, thing, first time you say something that's so dramatic and so, so divorcing to the person, you literally, he had, doesn't have a way of dealing with it and just saying to himself, well, the person really does care for me and that's why they're saying this, but they're saying this because they really want to make an impression that I shouldn't do this. Most people today, when they get that kind of a treatment, they'll say this person doesn't like me and this person doesn't, I don't want to have anything to do with this person. It's finalizing the mistake. It's finalizing the mistake. Years ago, people were made, I'm, I'm saying it in a general sense, of course there are many exceptions, but people were made of, of, of stronger fiber in their rebellion and in their going away, and very often you had to meet, you had to meet it the way they did it. The stronger, the stronger they did it, the, the stronger you had to meet it. Excuse me? The tape is disconnected? I wish, but it isn't. <laughs> It isn't. It just fell off the table. Okay. Next. <coughs> okay, if there are no more questions, that's, e that's good. Oh, there is a question back there? Yes. Okay. 
Okay, we, we got some good ones tonight. Um, the answer to the, the Talmud talks about that very specifically. The Medrash, in fact, it's a Medrash Tanchuma uh, in Parshish Vayikra. The Medrash Tanchuma says, and this is a dram- dramatically different, by the way, from other, other belief systems, the soul does not have a choice in, in the Jewish way of thinking. I'll, uh, in fact, I'll, I'll say the words in Hebrew, I'll say the words in Hebrew and translate them in English and you'll get the import of it. Al karchach atanaitza, tough nuggies, I want you to be born. Al karchach atanaitza. I'm not asking you. You have to be. In fact, the Medrash says, the Medrash says that the, that the soul, figuratively speaking, argues with God, I'm comfortable here. I don't want to go into the world. I don't want to have the captivity of the world. I don't want to have the restrictions of the world. And God says you have a mission to accomplish. There's something that has to be done. And that mission can only be accomplished in the physical world. You must go. This is dramatically different. I once pointed this out a long time ago. This is dramatically different from other belief systems that say that the soul made a mistake in its selection to come into this world. Now, most people would say, what's the difference? If the soul made a mistake and came here or it was sent here, one way or the other, it's here, it's arrived. So what difference does it make? It makes a tremendous difference because if you say that the soul, to begin with, has made a mistake, first of all, it's not saying too much for the soul. Number two, if the soul made a mistake coming here, it would seem totally logical that a person should live within a, 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 a life system of correcting the mistake. And the sooner that I can get myself to, to live in outer body experiences, in denial of, of, of the physical reality, the sooner I'm coming to correct the mistake. While on the other hand, the Jewish perspective that says that the soul was purposefully put here means that I'm challenged to find out why and to use it instead of looking for the outer body experiences. So it does make a, a tremendous difference. Yes. Yeah, the concept that all of our knowledge uh, uh, that we were had a greater awareness of reality before birth and then forgot everything uh, yeah. after birth is mirrored in, in Greek and Plato and Socrates as well. Uh, well, where do you think they got it from? I suppose they may have gotten it from us, but I just wanted to uh, ask your opinion as to whether this, this is kind of a universal uh, phenomenon that the, that the human soul has a Well, obviously, every religion or every philosophy, if they do subscribe to this kind of a concept, would not say that the the uh, the developing embryo of a Muslim was learning Judaism. Now, obviously not. They, they certainly they certainly will say that that it was learning Ma- it was it was learning the Muslim religion. Obviously, um, if it is a universal belief, I'll tell you the truth. I never studied comparative religion extensively, so I, I wouldn't be able to make a statement of that nature because it would, it would be making the assumption that I, I can be a spokesman for more, more than Judaism. I have a hard time being a spokesman even for that. Right. 
But what was that based on? I'm very curious. What was it based on in, in, in Greek belief? What was it based on? See, in Jewish belief, it's based on the fact that a soul is a living entity. You know, the idea that a soul is goose pimples and hot and cold spells and inspirations, this is all nonsense. Uh, a soul is, is, is a living entity, not necessarily a physical, it's not a physical entity and measurable in, as a physical entity, but it's a real live thing. It, it has personality. It's responsible for the emotions of the human being. It's responsible for many of the psychological factors of the human being. It's a living entity. So therefore, when you're dealing with the soul as a living entity, all right, that pre-existed its, its, its being here, all right, so then the idea that there are ex learning experiences and so on that the soul goes through, that it carries in on an imprint level into life, is a very reasonable thing. Right? But I don't think that Greek belief would be dealing with concepts of soul, so it must be a, a different idea. All right. I, I certainly am not. So uh, I don't know where it would be based. I'm just saying that the realness of it is, 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 much, more, is much more believable okay, uh, when you're dealing with a soul that is a much, much more developed concept in, in Judaism. The whole idea of the soul and what it is and what its cognizance is and its pre-existence and its existence after the physical termination of life. You know, the whole definition of soul is a, is a very sophisticated definition of, of an entity of existence. So uh, applying this kind of thing to it doesn't, uh, you know, is not, uh, is not a shocking kind of thing. You know, something comes to mind. You know, I always tell you things that come to mind. I want to share with you with something, and then I have to stop. But I want to share with you something which is very fascinating. There's, um, there's a Gemara. The Talmud says that right before a child is born, God makes the soul swear. Take an oath. The oath that the, that, uh, the soul is asked to take is the oath of Tehit Sadik Va'al Tehi Rasha. Be a righteous person in whatever circumstances you find yourself. Be a righteous person and don't be a person that makes negative choices. That's the, that's the oath that the Neshama takes. It's very interesting. It's, it's not really for now, but other sources talk about the fact that a Neshama, a soul, takes an oath for the laws of Kashrus in particular which is a very, very fascinating thing. We'll, we'll have to leave it for another time. Why? The significance of these oaths in, in, in uh, relationship to everything that we spoke about is the concept of strong imprint. An oath is a much stronger imprint than something that's without an oath. Now, there's a very fascinating thing. The commentaries on this particular uh, teaching in the Talmud ask a question. Why does the soul, before it comes into this world, have to take an oath all of the souls took the oath at Sinai. You know, the, this commentary asks it as a simple question. I saw the question, I fell out of my seat. In other words, what's the necessity for this oath? All of the souls were present at Sinai and they took the oath of Nasev and Ishma at Sinai. Now, I'll tell you the answer in a minute. The answer is a can of worms. But the, the question, the simplicity of the question that every neshama has an imprint of Sinai 
to the extent that the commentary can ask, what's the need for taking an oath? You took the oath 3,500 years ago, which obviously doesn't mean that you consciously took the oath. It's again the concept of the imprint upon the neshama. Again, the, the discussion that we're having this evening. Now, the answer that the commentaries say, and I really better put my hat on or I won't get out of here after I tell you the answer. The answer that the commentaries say is it's true that a soul took the oath, created the imprint from the Sinai experience, but souls come into this world more than once and they might have broken the connection of oath or diminished the, the, the sense of connection to the oath, the sense of commitment to the oath in a previous lifetime. And because they might have hurt... Now, you can't destroy the oath. I don't go back from what I said before. You cannot, you cannot obliterate the oath. But everybody knows that when you make a commitment to do something and you break the commitment 15 times, the next time you make a commitment, the commitment doesn't have the same strength because it's something that's been broken. Does it mean that the commitment doesn't have a responsibility with it? Of course, it still has. But I've weakened my ability to, to feel commitment, to feel a sense of commitment. So to this, the commentaries say that it's conceivable that the neshama became we weakened in its connection to that imprint and therefore to reinstate and to rejuvenate that, that the, the connection to the Sani experience is the new oath. Tehid Tzadik Valti Rasha. Yes. Sure, no problem. So we don't have a choice about the soul coming into the world. What does the writing say about the body through which the soul? Is there a selection choice there? In other words, our parents. Be a little bit more clear about the question. I'm not. I'm not sure which question you're asking. I know you're asking something. I'm not sure which one. Okay, that's a good question. No, that, no that, that's an excellent question. And the answer that I would say to that is as follows. The answer that I would say to that is as follows. That we all know that our spiritual missions are very often defined by the circumstances of our physical presence. Um, very often what we are physically or what we're not physically creates the entire arena within which we have to operate spiritually as well. A person is poor, a person is rich, a person is healthy, a person is poor. All of those things create specific circumstances which when, now I have challenges. The rich man has his challenges, the poor man has his challenges. So there definitely is. The same Talmud that says that the soul is forced into this world, the same Talmud says that the factors that will create the circumstances for that soul are predetermined. Now that doesn't mean that they are predetermined and they are one condition for the person's entire life. But yes, God will create a chemistry of a soul that will be able to deal with the challenges of, of, of a healthy body. God will create another kind of soul that will be able to deal with the challenges of an unhealthy body. God will create a soul that will be able to create, uh, deal with the challenges of, of being a handicapped, God forbid. Another soul with the ability to be able to, you know, and so on and so forth. So there is a matching. In other words, if the question is, is there a matching where it's just random which body it hits, it's, it's not random. Because, because the physical body 
is very much responsible for the arena within which we choose. You know, it presents many of the circumstances. I, I have to stop here. <laughs>